Good morning, church. Today we'll be in Psalm 8, that's page 450 in the Bibles around the room. I'm going to read the scripture, and then when I'm done, you'll respond by saying, thanks be to God, because we are so thankful that God has provided his word for us. Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you have cared for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the reading of God's word. Let's pray, church. O Lord, how majestic is your name. We praise you, God, as the creator of all things, the healer of brokenness and conqueror of sin. We pray that you remind us of your glory as we look upon your creation filled with beauty and grace. Please humble our spirit and open our hearts to receive your word today. Please be with Pastor Mark. Give him strength, power, and understanding to teach your mind. Amen. Well, good morning. We are... Uh focusing on the attributes of God. And uh, what a great start last week, looking at who God is. And we're continuing this series of here's, here's six traits right now at the beginning of 2020. Here's six traits that God has in himself alone, which is, a, which is good. We, we need to study and look at God so that we have some solid footing for whatever this year brings. And so right now we're looking at these six things and then we're going to come back to the attributes in God again in, in, in 2021. We're just excited. We want, we want to know God and we want that knowledge of God to affect us in great ways. And if you're here and you're seeking and you're searching or trying to figure out who God is, what a great series you've walked into as we just look at here's what God is like. And, and here the Bible asserts these things and we have to figure out whether or not we'll receive them and allow them to do their work in us, or we're going to reject them and walk away. And, but, but here's the thing. You, you can't know a God that you create. You have to know the God that actually is. And that's why we go to the scripture, and that's why we go to the Bible, because God has revealed himself. And so then we, we love God. We, we want to know God, and we want to worship God. And this week, we're, we're looking at this next attribute of God, his transcendence, it's called. It's not, not a word we typically use, um, but there was a moment in my life where transcendence, where the, the meaning of transcendence became really significant. Um, the 80s were just better all the way around. Um, and one of, one of the ways the 80s was better is that, um, that the Navy invited you on a Navy ship um, if you had a family member in the Navy, that's pretty amazing. That would never happen anymore. That, that is over. If you've been in the Navy, uh, maybe you've heard of this called the Tiger Cruise. Um, but my brother was in the Navy. He was on the Juno, the USS Juno. And they would go out on, in the Pacific for six months, and then they would return via Hawaii. And then they would stop at Hawaii at the end of this six-month Westpac, and then they would go from Hawaii to San Diego. And when I was in sixth grade, um, they opened up this tiger cruise and, and family members could join your uh, brother or father, whoever was in the Navy, can join them for the cruise portion between Hawaii and San Diego. And it was amazing. You're on a like functioning Navy ship amongst a carrier crew and there's like 15 ships out there, a couple submarines, you never saw them. Um, but it was this whole pack and, and they traveled together and it was just this working Navy ship that you got to be on. And it was the coolest thing ever. I got to steer the boat. That's a whole other story. I'll get to that one another time. I got my brother in big time trouble with the captain. Um, 
But, but, but we, got, we, we got to just kind of be part of it. We got to shoot a bunch of guns. I got to shoot the cannon. I have a shell in my, in, uh, my office at, or in my room at home. It's about this tall. I shot the cannon at this, uh, like, inflatable, this floating thing out there and totally missed. Uh, it was horrible. It was really bad. Don't depend on me. Um, but this, this, this little cruise was amazing. A little kid being on a Navy ship for seven days. In the middle of this cruise, we hit a typhoon. And like I said, there's 15 to 20 ships out there. I can't even remember. And you'd, you'd walk outside and you'd kind of see them out on the horizon. And the, the one kind of towards the front in the center was the carrier, which is huge. And we were, we were just like off the side of the carrier. And we hit this typhoon and, and they warned us. They said, it's going to be really rough, stay inside, all that kind of thing. Um, and so we, and we're just bouncing all over the place. And the ship we were on was this defense ship that would hold Marines and kind of be able to sink the bottom and get amphibious vehicles out and all of that stuff. And so um, we were just, we were a pretty small ship in comparison. And this night, the storm was hitting really hard. And my brother was like, hey, let's go outside and check it out. You got to see it, right? He'd been in the Navy for a long time. He's like, you got to see this. And so we go outside and the ship is just going crazy. But the thing that took my breath away was looking off the side of the ship and watching this carrier in the moonlight. Just a massive beast, a city. So huge. I mean, just mind-blowing big. And I remember seeing this aircraft carrier out in the middle of the ocean and waves so huge. And this carrier was just being tossed and it would go up and down. There was this one part where it, it would flip down. You'd see the, the propellers in the back of the ship. It was being tossed around so much in this ocean and this big, massive ship, right? That, that we put so much faith and trust in, in our defense um, as a nation was nothing compared to the sea. That's transcendence. Transcendence is something that we think is so big and so strong, but you put it you put it inside the ocean, and all of a sudden it's insignificant and small. I just remember this moment in the moonlight. And that's what we're talking about, this God who is there. This God that is like an ocean that no matter what we build or who we are or what we've built of our own life or, or how big or how strong or how amazing we are, we put ourselves in the ocean of this transcendent God and we are just tossed around like nothing. The best things that we could ever create are nothing in comparison to the transcendence of God. And Psalm 8 gives us this view, leads us in. What is God like? What does it mean that God is transcendent? And that's not a word that we use very often. And then we get into the Psalm chapter 8, and he uses a word, verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So now we've gone from transcendence to majestic, two words we don't use, right? Like we, we just don't, we don't typically use the word majestic at all. But this is the very point of this Psalm. If you look in verse one, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. And then he ends the Psalm in chapter eight, how majestic is your name. What does it mean? What does transcendence mean? What does majestic mean? And here the author of Psalms wants us not only to know about the transcendence of God, but wants us to feel it. That's the point of the Psalms, that they're, they're these moments of worship. Not that you would just know things about God, but that it would lead your heart to something. So we're to know and to feel this majesty of God, this transcendence of God, and, and we'll define it. If you think of the word majestic, maybe the one time you would use it is if you were somewhere out in kind of a natural wonder. If you're at the Grand Canyon, you might go, that's majestic. If you were on the North Shore in Hawaii, looking at 50, 60 foot waves, you might go, that's majestic, right? It's not like if, you're, if your wife came and said, how do I look in these jeans? Majestic. <laughs> that's the right word. Say that one. Say that one. It'll go far. You're like, majestic. They're like, like a horse? Like, what do you mean Majestic. <laughs> Majestic is one of those words we don't use very often, but David pulls us to it. But if you were to look at something, some kind of natural wonder, you might use that word. And here's what we mean by it. Here's what David means by it. It means something like beyond amazing, separateness, 
otherness, full of awe. Maybe you'd use some of those words, which would be really great if your wife asked how you looked in those jeans. Full of awe, baby, you know? Look at what, what, what David says. Majestic is your name. How, how awe-inspiring is your name. How otherness, separateness, out of this world, amazing, beyond amazing, is your name. That's what David's getting at. That, that's what this meaning of transcendence looks like. But he goes farther. He goes farther because this is how we get into the, how do we, how do we know this isn't just a, a thing we say to God? How do we know that God himself is majestic, transcendent? Look what he says. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. And we all know if you have a good name, we're not talking about your name, right? If, if you have a good name with coworkers or a good name at your school or a good name amongst roommates or something like that, you know we're not talking about your name, right? No, nobody's like, Mark's such a great name. You know? Yesterday in the car, this seriously happened. Landon is talking about what he might name his kids. And Chrissy goes, well, Mark, right? Name him after your father. He's like, oh. <laughs> and in one moment, they're like, oh, you know, like, <laughs> Uh, and, and, it, and, it, and I feel the same way. My dad gave me his first name as my middle name, which is Irwin, which is lame. I've hated it my whole life. Mark Irwin South, like that's hick. I don't want that. And so, and it, and it stinks because it, my brother should have got my dad's first name, but he got my dad's middle name, which is Eric. And I'm totally jealous of him, but I got Irwin. But when we, say, when we say God's name, we're not just meaning a name of God. We're meaning that everything that that name implies. We're meaning all the depth of character. We're literally meaning the nature of God. So when you go to chapter, or verse, chapter 8, verse 1 in Psalms, how majestic is your being? How majestic is your character? David is pointing to the very nature of God. He's saying something much deeper than you just have a great name. He's talking about this iceberg effect of everything that God means. So why are we using, this is why we're using the scripture to talk about the greatness or the transcendence of God or the majesty of God because David tells us that God's very nature, God's very being, everything that his name represents is majestic, is transcendent. God's transcendence, I would define as this, is God's nature of awe-filling greatness. And that's what we mean by it's not just knowledge. If I just said God's great, and you're like, all the time. Like, that's a nice phrase. But when you add this idea of awe-filling, not even inspiring. God, God's nature does something different than just inspire us. It fills us. It, it, it takes our view. It encapsulates everything that we want to live for and by. It is awe-filling. This is the greatness of God. This is the transcendence of God. Do we have it? Do we have it like David says? Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic. Is that a way in which we wake up and embrace God? God, I'm so full of awe today of your incredible, I don't just know your greatness. I am filled with it. It encapsulates me. It invigorates me. The awe-filling greatness of God, that is majesty. That is transcendence. Jad Packer says, the, the reason why some of our faith is feeble is because our view of God's greatness is feeble. That's how important this is. In a letter that Luther wrote to Erasmus, he said, you are thinking of God too humanly. Now this, this is important because we're, we're now in a culture where we, we are just drawn to think of God very personable, very with us. Very, very, very kind of, 
hey, God, I'm good. I'm good with you. And, and, and we have this very human way of viewing God like a best. Remember the hats? Jesus is my homeboy. Remember all that? Yeah. We have this view of like, oh, Jesus is just more, just this really close friend. And he is. And none of that, none of that stuff about how personal and close God is, how friend-like God is, is wrong. But it must be matched with his greatness. And sometimes we have a too human view of God. And when we do that, what we do is we downplay the differences between us and God as if they don't matter. And we forget to elevate our view of God and see him as something totally other than us, something totally unlike us, something awe-filling great. So what does David tell us about the nature of God? So God is majestic. His nature is transcendent. What does he say about it? We'll look at the rest of it. But he says it in, the, in just even the first words. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. If you look in your Bible, you'll find that that Bible in front of you or has L-O-R-D all capitalized. When you see that in the Old Testament, that's a pointer to the fact that the word here is the word Yahweh. The very name of God, the God, the name that God gives himself is Yahweh. It's, it's the word that means I am who I am, Yahweh. I'm ever present. We talked about that last week. So right from the get-go, we find something out about the awe-filling greatness of God. And he says, Yahweh, our Lord, Yahweh, meaning that this This God who has made himself known as Yahweh, the God that is, the God that has been revealed in the Bible is the God in which transcendence belongs to. David makes a claim that that only God is great in the way that God is as revealed in the Bible. That God doesn't share his greatness, his awe-filling greatness with anything Oh, Lord, our Lord, right? And then he goes on, how majestic is your name in all the earth? Meaning, meaning David really wants us to see that the greatness of God is God's alone. And we have a propensity to line up things in levels of greatness. And sometimes God takes the top of that list, and sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes it's something else, isn't it? Sometimes something else comes to us as awe-filling greatness, and we, we put that there, and we put God a little bit lower. And the problem with that is what we see in the scripture is God alone is transcendent. God alone belongs at the, at the top of what we consider great. There's 34 verses in the Bible that makes the transcendence of God exclusive. God is exclusive. He is. He excludes any other God being on his level. He excludes any other God of any other religion around the world from being on his level. That's the assertion of the Bible. And sometimes it's amazing, like in movies or TV, people will come up and they're like, well, I've read, I've read the Bible and it's about, it's about love. And it's, a, it's about a God who loves, or it's about a God who does good, just like this God or that God or this religion or that religion. But if you really read the scripture, the assertion of the Bible right here in chapter 8, along with 34 other places, is that God alone is transcendent. And we have to wrestle with that, don't we? Because that's a hard thing to say in a culture, because exclusivity is not a thing that we talk like or want to Talk like we're a very inclusive culture, but God is a very exclusive God. Meaning there is no other God like him. And transcendence belongs to his name. Transcendence belongs to his nature. Transcendence belongs to Yahweh, the God that was revealed. I just want to give you some scripture here, just so you have an idea of how the Bible talks about it. Starting in Isaiah 42.8, listen to this, how clear this is and everything that I'm saying out of chapter 8. Look at how it it. It reveals itself in the rest of the Bible. Yahweh is my name. This is God speaking through Isaiah. Yahweh is my name, and I will not share my glory with another. Yahweh is my name. I'm the revealed God. I am who I am, and I'm not going to share anything that is mine with any other God. That's that's the assertion of the Bible. 
2, Isaiah 45, look how he continues. Just two chapters, three chapters later. I am the Lord. There it is, Yahweh. I am the Lord, and there is no other beside me. There is no God. When we talk about the nature of God, we're talking about the nature that is exclusively God's and nobody else's and nothing else's. Joel 2, 21. Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord, Yahweh, your God, and there is no other, and my people will never be put to shame. That's so good about that, because to assert that the God of the Bible is the only God is to embrace shame in our culture, is it not? We lose our boldness. We're unwilling to speak. We're like, okay, well, maybe there's some of, you know, like a little bit of truth in, in everything. God's nature to be big and great and awe-filling only belongs to God. And then look in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 1.17, now to the king. So it gets, it gets sent all over to the New Testament because maybe you'd say, Pastor Mark, that's Old Testament. So let's go to New Testament, 1 Timothy 1.17, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You know, the, the fact that God himself and Christ, now that Christ has been revealed as God in the New Testament, he is getting all the glory, all the recognition of his awe-filling greatness all the way through. Every page of scripture, only God is the exclusive God given the title of great. Wasn't even Jesus was challenged one day with being good, with being great. And what did, how did Jesus answer? Only the Father, only God the Father is great. He was making a statement about himself, but he's making a statement about the nature of God alone. So this is the transcendence and it belongs to God. And we have to know that. We have to, we have to see that. But then it, it goes on. God himself is exclusive amongst all other gods. But then the second part of this, and we're, we're still in verse one, O Lord, our Lord. You see that? One is Yahweh, and the next one is king or ruler. So Yahweh, our God, our Lord, our ruler, our king. And this is the two, this is the two components of faith, that we recognize who God is, and we recognize who we are in light of that God. And at the same time, then we also recognize that God is Lord over us. It takes both those things. That's what... That's what faith looks like. It looks like recognizing who God is, who Jesus is, and then submitting to him as ruler, as Lord. So here's the first part is God's exclusive in his transcendence. The second part is that God's transcendence is inclusive. And what I mean by that is it, it's for all of us. And it's, it has nothing to do whether or not we believe or whether we don't. It has nothing to do whether we're a Christian or not. It, it has everything to do with the nature of God's existence and that everyone. So this is our, this is this word, our, our Lord, everyone's Lord. But then it goes on. How do we know that? How majestic is your name in all the earth, in all the earth. It's inclusive. That God, God's awe-inspiring greatness is for everyone. And that the whole world is meant to see and know and feel and worship the greatness of God, the transcendence of God. It's amazing. Our Lord, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic. So that's first, the transcendence of God is exclusively God's and it's for all of us to embrace. It's for all of us to feel. It's for all of us to engage this great awe-filling God. What's the second part? And it goes on, looking at verse 3. We'll come back to 2. But go down to verse 3. We'll look at verse 3 uh, through 5. Look how he continues this idea of the transcendence of God. And when I look at the heavens, or I will look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Super familiar verse. One that is meaningful. It's been significant in my life. And I think sometimes we got to put it in the right perspective because we jump 
too quickly to make it about us. One of the things that I've, I've really enjoyed, I just love um, about living here, is walking out at night and looking up. The stars are amazing here. And it's one of those things I hope I just don't ever get bored of. But, you know, because we're closer, but the sky is clear, uh, a lot less smog, you know, going on here, which is beautiful. But the stars are amazing. Sometimes we just get out of the car at night and we kind of look up and all of us look up and we're like, oh, my gosh, look at the stars. That's what that's what David here does. He's he's looking up. Maybe he's even writing this at night. Maybe by candlelight and he's outside and he's lying on his back and he's looking up and he's like, look at the stars, look at the planets, you look at the heavens, look at the universe, look what you've made, God. And when you consider that God made all these things way out there that we could never even get to, I mean, billions of light years away, we'll, we'll, we'll never get there on this side of eternity. Space travel and the next, in heaven, for sure. I, I, I'm not even joking. I, you, they, God has created the universe so that we will one day enjoy it, and you'll have eternity to fly there. So you're like, three billion years went by, now I got to see this planet. Oh, guess what? Infinite time to go, you know? That's what makes space travel amazing. We're limited because right now we're, we don't have the time. But we will one day. God is going to reveal all these things. I think it's going to be amazing. When you think about the heavens, and, and like when you think about like, the inner workings, not even just that bodies and planets and galaxies and all of that exists, but think of the, even just the, the intricate details of the placement of the earth. No, no other planet in its uniqueness can, can hold life. The location, just perfect distance where it's not too cold, not too hot. The rotation itself of the earth, the moon and its gravitational pull, and its light, and all of that, and the right gravity for our bodies, could you imagine, right? If there was too much gravity, we'd just, blah, you know, be a blob, we'd all be Jabba the Hutt. Some of you think that'd be cool. Like, you think about all the intricate details in the oceans, the fact that our planet has so much ocean and provides an atmosphere and oxygen, and uh, I'd say food, but that's gross. <laughs> The color green, think about that, that. The fact that the color green absorbs the right kind of light for plants to metabolize sun's energy. When you think of the, the intricate, the vast and the intricate details of the planets, sometimes you're like, man, that's amazing. And that's what David's doing. He's looking up. Do you know our kids, our kids if you have kids in, in, uh, in Livingstone's kids back there, they have a planetarium they're, they're going to do their lesson in. With stars and planets, it's amazing. You should check it out after this. I tried to get it all in here, so we were just preaching it. But but when you look at the universe, sometimes you're just awestruck, right? And then when you really think about it, it blows you away. And that's what David is doing here. And, and why? 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 Because the greatness of God, the transcendence of God, forces us, if we're really looking at it, forces us to consider how little we are. Because he's making an analogy of we can see somewhat how big and vast and amazing the universe is. And yet, what are we told? You have set your glory above the heavens in verse 1. And so he's making the connection that you look at the universe, it gives you a tangible picture of how small we are. And yet, God is greater than all of that. And that the heavens, we, we talked about this a little bit last week, that God cannot be contained inside the universe, that the universe is far too small. His fullness is greater than creation. And so then the greatness of God, the transcendence of God, which belongs only to God, which is ours, and we're invited, but even if we don't take it, God is transcendent over us, and we're all meant to have an awe-filled greatness view of God. God's transcendence forces us to consider how little and small we are. And that's where I think sometimes we, we, we kind of go sideways on this verse. Because we use it to say, oh man, what is man that God is mindful of you? And we, we're, we're so quick to go, God thinks of you. We're so quick to get us in there, aren't we? We're like, how do I get me in this text right now, you know? And it's like we, we tend to quickly go over the transcendence of God and get back to us who we think are the most important. God thinks of you. God thinks of you. And that is 100% true. 
but it has to be put in the right order so that it's as maximal, it has its maximum effect and meaning, significance. And it starts with, this isn't about us, this is about God. And even this phrase of God's thoughts and care for you is not about us, it's about God. That this whole chapter is about the greatness of God. So before we jump into the middle and go, God thinks of me, I'm, I'm, I'm significant, I'm on God's mind, that's how amazing I am. We, we, we want to encourage one another very quickly, and that's with a good and compassionate heart, but we need to step back so that we understand what does it mean that God considers us, and what does it mean that God thinks of us? And it starts with knowing our smallness, not our bigness. It starts with reducing ourselves to our proper place. And there's a couple places where God speaks. One of those is in Job, when Job's frustrated that God's done the things that God has done in Job's life. And, you know, he finally gets bold enough to go, God, what are you, what are you doing, you know? Could have been a better way. And he's, he's wrestling with the Lord. God answers Job. I love this. I'll read just two sections from chapter 38. It's a very long section, but I would love for you to meditate on it. But listen to what he says. Dress for action like a man. I love that. Cup up, bro. We're about to talk. That's what. <laughs> I will question you, and you make it known to me. God says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched the line on it? On what were the bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? And when the morning stars sang together of all the sons of God shouted for joy. Where were you, bro? That's what he's saying. And then looking in 38, 34 through 36. I love this. Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of water may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Have you created the complexities of your brain, of your mind? How? The very idea is, Job, you're small. Job, you're so small. And yet you're, well, there's these moments where we're so prideful and, and we, we try to steal this transcendence. That's, that's this thing that comes out at the attributes of God over and over and over is how we try to steal the attributes for ourselves. And we put ourselves as quickly as we can into the very center of God. But remember, that's thinking of God too humanly. We need to come out and see God's eminence and is how personal he is in light of how great and how big he is. So it forces us to see how small we are. But then it also forces us, it also forces us to see our sinfulness and pride and rebellion. And we see this because David, who wrote Psalm 19, listen to what he says in light of the stars and the heavens and the universe. Look what he says in 19.4. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor their words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And in them, he has sent a tent for the sun. Here's what David is getting at. Nature perfectly honors the greatness of God. We find that in, in Romans, right? What is plain about God has been clearly seen through what has been made. There's all kinds of scriptures. What did Jesus say? If these people stop worshiping, what will happen? Gravel will sing. Rocks will sing. They'll grow mouths. It'll be a funky scene. But they'll do it, and they'll sing. Why? And, and there's this amazing reality that nature perfectly obeys God all the time, right? So then one of the things that David is doing is looking up to the sky and he's going, man, look at the heavens. And then out of 1914, we find that his perspective is look at the heavens who perfectly obey you, who honor you in totality. The heavens declare glory. I love this little verse. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims God. And, and they pour out speech, but there's no words. Their voices are never heard, but they're doing it. Love it. So not only does the transcendence of God force us to have to see ourselves as small, the greatness, the awe-filling greatness of God forces us to see our own pride. It forces us to see that the heavens and the earth perfectly honor and worship God, and we don't. Isn't that amazing? 
those who have made been made in the very image of God, the, the ones who God shared himself in our creation, nothing else in all of creation shares the image of God. And yet the very image bearers of God are prideful and conceited and self-worshippers. The amazing thing about the transcendence of God is it destroys our pride and levels, levels us, brings us low. Now, in this perspective, in that God is so great and we are so small and in that God is so perfect and that and that creation perfectly honors God and we don't and we're fallen and, and, and we're rebellious and we're prideful and we elevate ourselves and try to steal God's transcendence. Now in light of that, hear these words, what is man that you are mindful of him? What is the son of man that you care for him? See, when you put it in the right perspective, this scripture is not about us, it's about God. God's thinking about us is not about us, it's a statement about God. That in light of our pride and rebellion and error and elevation and stealing God's transcendence and making ourselves great instead of putting us in the proper order like creation does naturally, yet in light of all of those, God thinks of you. That's how amazing this great awe-filling God is. When he should just ride us off, flick us off. Remember that, remember that sermon, Hands in the, uh, God, or Man in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards? Well, we kind of had to read in school. We kind of reject because we're like, man, why is he so angry, bro? But what he's saying is 100% true. I mean, God should just flick us away. But the fact that he doesn't is the amazing thing. And he doesn't think of us because we're something. We're nothing. And he thinks of us, which makes him something. That's what makes it so powerful. It doesn't only just say, notice this, it doesn't say that God only thinks of you. No, no, that he cares for you. Sometimes we need a moment where we just think of the difference between us and God. Because the difference between you and God is more different than you and an ant. Like think about an ant's life, right? You, that is totally different than our life. It's totally different. We have, no, we have nothing in common with an ant. And yet, we have more in common with an ant than God does with us. In terms of his greatness and bigness. And the fact that God would come in the form of humanity, become, in a sense, an ant in order to rescue us is a mind-blowing. And not that he just thinks of us, but that he cares for us. And it generates this, man, I'm so beginning to get so full of awe of this amazing God, although he should have nothing to do with me, fills his mind with the rebellious and the evil, those who have walked away from him. Mind-blowing. So, We find who God is in his character. We find transcendence displays our smallness and sin. The, the, the rest of the psalm is about how does the transcendence of God get displayed? And, and, and he, he breaks down two ways. How does the transcendence of God, God being this big and this great, how does he work? How does he function? And David gives us this answer. Look what he says in, in verse 2. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. So here's, here's the whole argument. God is huge. He's big. He's great. He's majestic. And out of the mouth of babies and infants, he establishes his greatness. Do you see that? So this is amazing because we don't have a God that's great and transcendent that establishes himself with this Massive use of shock and awe, power, and authority. What does he do? He uses babies. He uses infants. Which is another way of saying he uses the least, the insignificant, the small. In order what? To establish his transcendence. So the transcendence of God, the awe-filling greatness of God gets established not through amazing acts of power, but through the display 
of weakness and frailty. That's how he defeats his enemies. You see that? He defeats his enemies through the mouth of babies. Now, this gets fulfilled in Christ, doesn't it? Not only does Christ become a baby, that's one part that gets fulfilled in this. That God crushes the ultimate foe through the birth of Jesus, not through the strength of a coming king who comes in all of his glory and fanfare, but comes in humility and weakness as a baby to what? To crush the head of the serpent that was promised to us in the very first pages of the Bible. That God has established his greatness through the weakness of sending his son. Which then sets in motion for us. That the greatness of God, the awe-filling greatness of God, gets established in our hearts through the weakness of Jesus that ultimately displays God's greatness. That's why Romans says, through the kindness we're led to repentance. See, if God came in all of the fullness of his transcendence, we would be crushed. Another psalm says, God, if you were to mark my transgressions, who could stand up against you? Nobody could. None of us could stand up against God. If he came in all of his bigness, we would be crushed like an ant. But he comes in, in weakness and humility in frailty, and it is through that means that God defeats the ultimate foe, Satan. And then opens up for us through Christ God's ability to establish his transcendence in us through weakness and not strength. When we trust in Christ, we're trusting that through weakness, God is dominated. That through weakness, God is won. Through weakness, God is victorious. And so then when we look at Jesus and we receive that, we're like, it's only through Christ. Through Christ, I get the bigness of God. I don't get the bigness of God by trying to front and be a big and be big. I don't try to get the greatness of God waiting for this great power. You know, the power of God is, is in salvation through repentance. The power of God is in through faith, through weakness. Repentance is us going, I'm weak. I can't save myself. I need God to save me. And through weakness, the transcendence of God gets displayed. And here's what I love about it. Notice it says through the mouths of babies. It doesn't say like through the fists, like buff babies. It says through the mouths. Because you know what the ultimate weakness of man is? We have no power and authority. But but in Christ, there's a power and authority and the transits of God that gets manifested through the proclamation of the gospel. So as we speak the gospel of Jesus Christ, as we speak that it's not me, but him crucified, as we, as we invite people to know Jesus through the gospel of Christ, what happens? The foes of those that we love, mainly the lies in, of the enemy, the death, the sting of death, shame and hell itself gets broken down by the greatness of God through the proclamation of the gospel. That God empowers the gospel of Jesus Christ through the proclamation of it. And all of a sudden, the transcendence of God gets known, that God can break sin, and God can break our shame, and that his transcendence means that there is nothing in our lives that is greater than him. Do you hear that? There is nothing, even your sin. This is what's great about the transcendence of God is he is so great. He is even greater than your sin, which means your sin cannot have victory over God, but God, through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, can have victory over your sin. Listen to 2 Corinthians, because this comes up in the New Testament, as Paul says, super familiar, 2 Corinthians 12, 5 through 10, on behalf of this man, Jesus, I will boast. But on behalf of, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except in my weakness. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness, the surpassing transcendence of the revelations of who? Of God. 
A thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord that this should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardship, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What's he saying? This is fulfilling what David is saying in Psalms chapter 8. Boast. Boast. We run from weakness and we front and we're trying to make people think around us, I'm not weak. I got it. I'm strong. I can go all day. Let's go. But inside, we're, we're fragile. We're wasting away. We're tired. We're broken down. And we keep trying to reinforce this idea that I'm strong. And the, and the worst of it is I keep trying to reinforce it in front of God that I'm strong. I can do the right thing. I can perform. I can worship. I can keep attending. I can show up to all the things if it means that I can boast in those things so that God might find some favor in me? No, no, no. How is the enemy defeated? Is defeated by the proclamation of the gospel through babies, which is, if, if anything, I'm going to boast in my weakness. Boasting is speaking. And through boasting in Christ, the transcendence of God gets displayed. But here's the thing. Isn't it amazing that Jesus was weak, and yet we, we hate it? And we, we actually want better things to happen in our life than they happened in Christ, don't we? And we reject the weakness of Christ. And so then we look at persecution or suffering or sacrifice. We look at laying down our lives for the sake of the bigness and the greatness of God like Christ did, and we reject it. And we want something different than Christ. But you know that Christ's life is in us. And, and, and so Christ brings us into this reality that it is not through strength, but through weakness. And lastly, the transcendence of God gets established through our everyday work and our everyday real life. Now, this, is, this one's surprising. You're reading the Bible, you get to five through eight, and you should be like, what? Like that, all right? So here we go. Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion. There it is. You can highlight that. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and the beasts of the field and birds of heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Well, what's, what's David pointing to? David's like, here's the logic. God is great. It exclusively belongs to him. Man is very small and sinful. And yet God's love is that he would be mindful of small, sinful man. And then he goes one further. He goes, not only are you mindful, but you've given him rule. You've given people rule over the great things that God has created. So God's transcendence then gets displayed not only through weakness and frailty, but it gets displayed through the rule of God in the world in your everyday life. Look at this word dominion. It brings us back to the garden. In fact, all the things here, the the works of your hands, creation, all things, the, the sheep and the beasts and the birds, it brings us back to creation that in God's greatness, he shared his rule over the earth. And we were meant to rule over the earth or rule our lives on the earth in a way that shows Christ or shows God is the ruler. And so then worship is the transcendence of God working through our everyday life. Meaning your life is a moment, is an opportunity to display the awe-filled greatness of God. But you have to know that awe-filled greatness of God to display it, don't you? And sometimes, sometimes we're Christians who have a, such a low view of God, we give up so easily. We turn away, we become faithless, and we come back to that, that sentence of J.R. Packer. One of the reasons why our faith is feeble is because our view of God is feeble. But God displays his transcendence, not by doing all the work, but by sharing the work with us so that the world can see that God is awe-filling great. 
last scripture, 1 Corinthians 15, 27 through 28. For God has put all things in subjection under her feet. That's a direct quote of Psalm chapter 8. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected who put all things in subjection subjection under him. Meaning when he puts all things, he means all things, and that in all things we should be expected to see God plainly. That's what he's saying. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him. So here's Jesus subjected to God. And it says why? To him who put all things in subjection under him. Why? That God might be all in all. And so our commission this morning in the transcendence of God, through repentance, through weakness, and receiving the bigness of God to break our sin, is then to go out of here and live in a way that displays the, tran- the transcendence of God so that anybody around us at all, through anything that we face, they would be able to say, God is all in all through you. By speaking and boasting in Christ alone, God becomes visibly transcendent all over the earth so that the God that is alone transcendent begins to include the many peoples all over the planet to begin to worship this transcendent, awe-filling, great God. Lord Jesus, thanks for this morning, your goodness, your grace, your kindness to us, which leads us to repentance. And I pray this morning, the weakness in which you will show yourself big is in the weakness of repentance that we would surrender and lay down our lives so that you could be most seen. We want to save ourselves by our works and by our words and by our actions, but we need you to save us, Lord Jesus. Make yourself so big to us this morning. This is a work of the Holy Spirit, and nothing I say can do this work. Only you, Holy Spirit, can come upon us in this room and make yourself so big to us that we would lay our lives down for you this morning, that we would, we would receive the invitation to come to you this morning and trust in Christ, that we would boast not in our strength, but in our weakness so that God would be most clearly seen as all in, in all. We pray you do that this morning in your name. Amen.